previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. I mean, I have a hard time telling people they're going to lose a tooth. <laughs> so it would be really hard for me to tell them they're going to lose a family member. So I decided dentistry was probably going to be better for me because I wasn't going to be able to handle my patients not making it on me. From Delaware, almost live, this is a Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome back to another episode of the Sports Refuge, the show where guests share their connection with sports. And as always, I am your host, Earl Holland. For you longtime listeners to the show, you may know Meredith Esguera from her appearance in episode 47, where she talked about her experience coming from California to the East Coast and attending a historically black college at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Also during that episode, Esguera shared how she found an interest in astrology as well. In conjunction with my birthday on February 19th, Meredith gladly returned to do a reading of my natal chart and solar return chart, which she goes further into explanation regarding their significance. In addition to that, Esguera will also participate in some sports trivia, as well as discuss how she's handled the pandemic. And now, here's my interview with Meredith Esguera. Meredith Esguera, she's been on the show before a few times, and you learned a little bit about her the last time. The episode is titled End of Stars. I'm glad to have you back. We have a couple items that we're looking to do. Interestingly enough, we were talking about this. You're going to do an examination of my natal chart in addition to have you do a bit of sports trivia as well. I'm glad to have you here, Meredith. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to see you again. You know, the first thing that we always ask everybody, especially now, is because everything has been going a little bit crazy. How has everything been during the pandemic? Um, I've been spending a lot of time indoors, but it's like an introvert's dream. Like I don't, like I, I have the perfect excuse not to see anybody, but it's not indicative of in any way of how I feel about people. It's just I like that I have my own space and I can kind of communicate with people from a distance. So it's wonderful. <laughs> you know, I always wonder, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Um, I guess it depends. I'd like to think of myself as more of like a friendly introvert. So I definitely feel like I need to go um, spend time by myself to recharge. And I feel like that's what defines an introvert is like what type of situations um, recharge them, like being around people versus just like having solace and solitude. On the other hand, I also really enjoy people's presence. So like when I'm in the moment and I'm like around other friends, like I wouldn't count myself as antisocial. I definitely like being around people and, and seeing them happy and just enjoying their company. But I need time away from that to, to recharge my batteries. Yeah. And the thing is for me, I always call myself a recovering introvert. And yeah, it's because that for years I could be by myself and being around people was draining. But I think the older I got and the more of that habit I broke, I used to think I was normally shy. But honestly, maybe it was I maybe had issues with certain people that and, and certain personalities clash. But other than that, I, I think I'm fairly affable. I can deal with people. I can handle people. And honestly, I think as a conversation and social gathering goes along, I actually think I get a little bit stronger, but I don't know if I would call myself a true extrovert. Of course, there's always the time you're, you're sitting back and examining, looking at people, maybe trying to read people. I, I don't consider myself a type of person that reads people. I go from the mindset of trust, but verify. Yeah. I mean, I feel like extroversion and introversion are more of like a spectrum rather than um, 
a black or white type of thing. So um, it seems like a lot of people kind of fall in the middle. And I feel like a lot of people also conflate introversion with being antisocial. And that's not really the case. Like, I think it's just like, those are separate functions, like liking people and also just liking being alone in order to recharge your batteries are, are mutually exclusive types of things. So I think you also touched on another thing, which is just being sure you're around the right friends. So sometimes we just don't choose the types of situations that we're put in. Like, I think it's like we we end up around certain people and then we might feel like an initial attraction to them. Like that spark of like, this person could be like a really good potential friend or partner for me or something. And as you get to know those people better, then you you kind of see like where you're more compatible or not compatible. So it's like a multifaceted issue. Like there's the compatibility thing, whether or not like you can only handle social interactions in large doses or small doses. And like, if you genuinely are <laughs> like somebody that doesn't like to be in social situations. So like all of those three things like are interacting at once. Yeah, no, I can understand that. It's interesting. You're just talking about being around people. We had a group Zoom call uh, with a few friends and we ended up having the discussion a- a- about a few things. We were just talking about vacations and stuff because, you know, there's hardly anywhere to go during a pandemic. And, you know, staycations were the idea. Living the dream. Don't have to go anywhere. Working from home was a great idea. Initially, don't have to go anywhere. Don't actually have to dress up. Don't have to deal with traffic until you've done it for almost a year. That's a whole different story there. But interesting, the, the conversation ended up going to a wild goose chase over the Vianetta ice cream that was returning. So... <laughs> excited about that actually because um i used to feel like that was the epitome of bouginess in my early childhood <laughs> and like i think it's just akin to um ice cream cake and um i feel apprehensive about like this fact that i put it on this pedestal and then like when i actually buy it it's just gonna be a normal frozen ice cream thing <laughs> It'll be no better than getting something from Carvel. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, just without the fancy looks of what, Cookie Puss or whatever the other Carvel ice creams. Nostalgia adds like 10 taste points, you know? Like, I already have an idea of how it tastes in my head. Like, it's, I vaguely remember that there's like this crunchy chocolate layer or something, and then like it was sandwiched between like ice cream and it kind of looked like tiramisu, but it was fancier. So, I already have this expectation of like all the feelings it's supposed to evoke in me and stuff like that. <laughs> and, like, and like, what if it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's gonna fall short of that because like our idea of something is like, always far removed from like the reality of what something is. <laughs> I always feel like things like Vianetta, that's like the upper crusty type foods like Grey Poupon and Fancy Feast for Cats, the planner all fruit where everybody's at the uh, the country club and the guy goes with the real country voice. Can you please pass the jelly? And, and just makes everybody faint because of his unrefinedness. And it's crazy to think about how such high esteem that we put certain foods as opposed to other ones where other ones are just a bunch of empty calories and it's trash food. You know, there's a lot of things that we can consider trash food, but people still like it anyway. But, you know, I honestly can't say I've ever had to be an I can't believe it. Um, but you know, like, I'm pretty sure actual rich people are not like anxiously waiting for Vianetta's return. Like, I think Vianetta is what middle class and poor people think rich people like. 
and they're like definitely not eating that they're doing something else yeah whatever their favorite thing is which is funny a lot of the sort of upper crust foods that that we think the rich folks like honestly are pretty accessible caviar is accessible escargot is probably accessible depending on if you know where to go lobster again very accessible it's funny i always see it at this as this as an adult um no kids you know we always talk about how kids mainly wait for christmas as an adult christmas is every day because really within reason i mean then again either way people can buy whatever they want whenever they want and it's not even a big thing like oh i just wanted to get a ps4 why not some people do that. Yeah, well, I feel like it's such a luxury to feel like you're able to go out and do that because then the reality of it is that most people have like a crippling amount of debt and bills and stuff where their money is already apportioned out. So they can't really think about, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they're able to plan and like affirm their choices and like what luxuries they can save up for but adulthood is like severely disappointing if like your income is below your your tastes <laughs> or like just feel like the sense of freedom because you've reached adulthood and you have like a job where you have like a disposable income and stuff like that but then like the reality of it is that you also have like a ton of adult responsibilities and I feel like people are just like way more privileged than they're willing to admit if they have like any sort of disposable income you know so well with that in mind like I, I don't mean to be like disparaging towards people that are like doing well for themselves it's more that like a lot of times I hear people complaining about stuff and then like, it's easy for me to do the same, but I have to have this attitude of like humility and gratitude. Like, man, like I have like all the stuff that like isn't accessible to other people. Like I have a lot of things that stress me out, but like maybe like a healthier way to, to view it is like to take inventory of the stuff I'm grateful for and stuff. <laughs> and um, that's not always easy to do because I'm like, I really want to buy that Vienna nut ice cream, man. <laughs> Is that in my budget? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. And I, I hear you completely. And I think people who who are broke who end up being high maintenance when it comes to things they like, too. But they can't reconcile that certain things have to be taken care of before you can end up trying to live how the other half lives sometimes. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, especially as we were talking about the pandemic, the, everybody's been binge watching everything and people watching tons of stuff on TV. What is your binge watching regimen been um okay so i'll have to tell you like what's at the top of my head like i, I recently got into this show called the dead files and there's like this medium who goes into houses and other properties like restaurants and stuff like that where there are people who are like yeah i definitely sense the presence and like you know, they it's interfering with their lives. Like apparently they're feeling some sort of paranormal presence that's like terrifying to them. Like they wake up with from attacks where they've been like bruised and stuff by like a ghost. And so she goes in there and she is able to interact with those presences and stuff like that and then give them recommendations on how to deal with them. So I think the aspect of it I like the most is just this idea that like every house has stories that you're not aware of, like that there were once people there who lived there a long time ago and like they had like really dynamic lives and like really interesting personalities and just experiences that you wouldn't really be able to see or be aware of. So 
that's why I feel like an attachment to that show. It's not necessarily like the occult element of it, but as a tarot reader, I could kind of relate to how she was interacting with some of the energies there. Cause sometimes she would say that she isn't really interacting with a ghost, but like a piece of a person's personality that, that exists there still. And I think a lot of tarot readers might say the same thing, but basically like when they're connecting with like the energy of cards, what they're seeing is a part of a person's personality that kind of exists in I don't know how else to describe it, but like a Google Drive that's like in the ether where that collects all of these like little movie clips of how you interact with other people and just like the sort of emotional imprint that you leave with people when you're having experiences with them. So I thought that was really interesting. Like I don't have like the gift of being able to see spirits and I'm, I'm kind of glad I don't, but I definitely understand and can relate to this idea of sometimes you can just have an awareness and an understanding of people's feelings and it's not something you can see on the surface or something that's really visible to anybody else. So those are two main reasons I felt drawn to that show. So I was kind of like binge watching that and then um, in my new house I've been like afraid of going into the basement <laughs> because like I'm, I watch that show at night and I'm like why am I doing this to myself now I can't sleep <laughs> I'm like terrified of ghosts so I still watch it though <laughs> I know you're also talking about some other shows maybe sort of like the true crime documentaries and shows yeah you know I can't even recall the names of them anymore I purchased like these little mini series on Amazon that were like part of like the true ID network or something like that where people will talk about like I think there were shows titled I Marry the Serial Killer or like I had this horrible first date and like I think I went into it thinking that people would talk about how their date was like really gross or something like that but it turned out to be a show about where they were almost murdered or someone close to them was like murdered by some serial killer that went on a date with them and I'm like oh okay that's not what I was expecting <laughs> I was expecting more of like something more lighthearted, like a rom-com that ends badly or something. So I'm sorry, but I can't give you any more tips there. Like I was religiously listening to my favorite murder. And so I kept looking for shows that were along that vein. Yeah, it's funny. During the early part of the pandemic, I was binge watching a lot of Murder, She Wrote. And it's funny, 12 seasons of episodes, you blow through it in almost three months, which is crazy. And I know, of course, now it's like on Peacock, so you can't not get away from it if, if you want. But pretty much my binge watching, aside from that, have been old sitcoms, old game shows, new game shows, and pretty much just regular TV. Other than that, not much sports to watch, uh, not much other things to guess distract yourselves. I mean, occasional video game playing, because that has been one of the best escapes when you can do that, especially now. And it's crazy that sometimes you can spend hours playing video games if you get yourself a little too caught up into it. Well, I think that's what makes it a great hobby. I can't think of many people who aren't using video games as like a fun diversion. And I feel like it's an affordable 
way to like do something fun. Like a lot of things aren't really accessible to people right now that you would normally use to literally escape like vacations or hobbies that are more expensive. And so I know that video gaming can be a bit expensive, but like on the spectrum of things that are expensive, like that's one of the things that are that's more accessible to people. And also serves as like a way to facilitate conversation between people because like a lot of people are playing the same games. I can't really say the same for myself. I was thinking about getting a Switch just so I could play Animal Crossing and it looks like a fun game, but it's expensive. I recently got into playing Pokemon Go and um, that's kind of been sucking up my money and stuff too. So, (laughs) and like there isn't even really much interaction involved in the game. I think the game itself though fosters a sense of building a team and like feeling like a sense of community because you have to depend on people you friend to access parts of the game. So that's a really great marketing thing that they picked up on. But the psychology of the game itself, just how a lot of games now are more geared to like this community, the sense of community and like the sense of fostering social interaction with other people is what makes them successful. And you would never think that you could look at games as that type of medium, like a medium for making people feel closer to each other and like build their friendships up and stuff like that. But that's a feature of a lot of games. So (laughs) are games that are doing really well right now. So I have to ask this question. When was the last time you were in an arcade and what would your go-to game be in an arcade? Oh man, I think, does Dave and Buster's count as an arcade? Or like, are you talking about an arcade, like an actual arcade from like the (laughs) 90s or something? (laughs) Let's classify Dave and Buster's as an arcade. All those different types of places, Dave and Buster's main event where there are arcade games. Because if we end up going back to describing, okay, The last time you've been to a true arcade, that could probably take you back a decade plus. So like a true arcade, I'd probably say I was not even a teenager yet. Like like that must have been like 20 years ago. I'm not even sure if there's arcades that exist still. And I want to say like five or six years ago, I was at a Dave and Buster's and like they have all those. I don't know how you would classify them, but they have like those shooter type games where like you're on a pirate ship and you have to like kill a bunch of undead. (laughs) So like they equip you with like a little gun or something like that. And, you know, I have a friend that collects retro games and like, I don't know what console it was for, but he had a game that was like very similar to do the games in arcades. And I thought it was really cool. Like, I think the mechanic was for interacting with the game is that you had to like type out certain words, like it was a typing game. (laughs) And like you had to type out certain words really quickly to be able to defeat more undead. So like, it seems to be like a formula for a lot of uh, games in arcades is you have to encounter a bunch of jump scare type monsters and like defeat them with whatever weapons you have and i think those are the only games i can think of so like i I suppose like that's what i would gravitate towards if i would walk inside an arcade like you have stuff like street fighter and like fighter type games and i'm not much of a gamer myself but like like i just feel like you could play those at home (laughs) and like save your token for something more meaningful no pinball or skee-ball or anything like that actually like pinball machines actually but like i haven't seen like i don't remember seeing one in the last arcade i was at i went to vegas a few years ago and they had like this really cool like pinball machine museum and i I wish i could remember what those look like because it's really cool like watching what goes on inside one and just thinking about the fact that 
someone had to sit there and like lovingly craft all of that makes me want to like watch it i'm like i'm not even really interested in how most things are made but i am kind of interested in like how a pinball machine is made because like that's a lot of artwork and (laughs) and like stuff that goes into it yeah and i think that stuff is probably slowly going out of style and those skee-ball machines i think they've stopped producing a lot of those so those things once they go up that's probably it for that unless they all of a sudden decide okay let's bring those back but you know pinball machines it feels like there are as many new pinball machines out there as there are new arcade cabinets and things like that. So, you know, that is very intriguing. I mean, pinball has never been my thing. I prefer the actual gaming sense. I think you ask anybody who knows me, they know what game I would hover towards when I'm in an arcade. And it's the Star Wars trilogy arcade game, because that was one I spent tons of quarters on all the time. Do they have it for like any of the platforms that you currently play on? Like Never. I don't think they ever did. Pretty sure that it's out there. I mean, like, it has to be. But I don't want to, like, ruin that for you if, like, you prefer to think it was something special and, like, exclusive to arcades. Yeah, I mean, that's how we used to feel about the X-Men arcade game, but then we ended up getting that on PlayStation Network years ago, and it's on my PlayStation 3. So whenever I actually decide to ever play that again, fire it up, and I got a four-player action to play X-Men, which... uh, that game feels like it's aged a bit, but then again, it was like 1990, so. Oh, man. Well, I feel like X-Men ages pretty well. It's funny how, like, a lot of the Marvel comics or really comic book characters um, have aged well. Yeah, and it's interesting seeing how you always have to... There's always, it feels like every five, ten years, there's always a reboot and you're just basically having the same origin story, tweaking things, but you push it ahead 10, 20, 30 years. Like, for example, Superman's story pretty much seems like it's the same, but instead of it being like in the 1920s or 1910s, now, okay, it's 1970s, 1980s, when, you know, they found the the rocket with the baby in it and... It's interesting to see how they modernize it. But then again, I feel like there's so many comic books, I can't keep track of them. It's crazy enough that I can remember some of these superheroes and supervillains that were like lower tier that end up showing up in these movies and TV shows. And like, I can't believe I still remember them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a nice bit of nostalgia, so... Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things we were talking about earlier is the discussion of the natal chart. I wanted to get an idea, I guess, to let people out there know what is a natal chart and how do you read it and what does it measure, I guess, to be the best way to describe it. Okay, do you want to pull up yours? Yep, and we'll put that up. So the first one is your natal chart. We could look at that. Okay. So basically, an astrology chart is a model of a sky that's projected upon the ecliptic. And it's what the ecliptic is, is the path of the sun that's seen from Earth. And like on your actual natal chart, this model includes a circle of 12 houses and signs. So each house has its own sign in the the chart system I usually use to read charts. It's the whole sign system. And the chart is determined on where the horizon is at the time that the chart is cast. So the horizon forms the boundary between what can be seen, which is like the visible sky, and then the sky which exists on the opposite side of the earth. So you know that whole saying, as above, so below. So there's the part of the sky that you can see, which is the as above part, and then the so below part is part of a chart that's on the bottom of where the horizon 
line is. So in that actual chart, you might see just like that middle line that goes like through the diameter of the circle. So that actually, there's like an axis that if you see where those two letters AC are, that represents your ascendant angle. Okay. And so that's the line that's being drawn across the horizon. And so everything above that chart or above that axis where your AC, your ascendant line and your DC descendant line are represents the parts of your life that are more visible to other people. Whereas the part of the circle that is below that line, below that ascendant axis represents parts of your life that are a bit more private to you. So that's what that chart represents. There's two other angles. One is called the Midheaven angle or the um, medium quelli. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I used to take Latin too, so I have no excuse. Um, and that represents the middle of a sky. So you see where those letters MC are? That's your Midheaven angle. And okay. what that represents in astrology is your public image and like the part of yourself that you would like the public to see, like how you, I guess a better term for it is like your aspirations and like your career, like what you want to be remembered for basically. And directly opposite the midheaven angle is called your IC line or it's called your imam quelli in Latin. And whereas the midheaven represents the part of the heavens that is like the highest point in the sky, like where, where the sun reaches the highest point, the opposite of that is like the midnight point. So if you think of like how part of the earth is covered in darkness, whereas the other part of the earth has daylight, that's what this chart sort of represents. And like the positions of the planets kind of speak to parts of your life where you can observe some type of planetary energy. So it's all about symbolism in a way, but Astrology just isn't what you want it to be. Or like a lot of times people feel like the significations of different symbolism in the chart is just something that can be made up. And it really isn't like there's actually a science to it and an interpretive divinatory art that comes along with being able to understand and appreciate like what that chart represents. So usually what I do when I start a natal chart reading is I look at the ascendant angle and the, the planetary ruler for that. So that's what I'll, I'll do with your chart. I'm just going to go through each house and kind of walk you through what each of those things represents. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. I'm all for it. So if you can see, there's like a part of the circle that's labeled one towards the center and it also contains the ascendant angle that I pointed out to you earlier. Mm -hmm. That's your first house. And your first house represents like your general self, like how you appear to the world, your outlook on life, and just how people perceive you when they meet you, really. And for you, your first house is Taurus. And Taurus is the earth sign of Venus. So by earth, I mean like an element. So there's the element of earth, there's the element of water, and um, there's the element of air and fire. So you have like a more earthy disposition to you. And in your first house, you happen to have your moon, which represents your inner emotions and your emotional state, um, how you happen to 
process emotions, and it's really tightly conjunct your ascendant angle. So one thing I will say about your chart is that you have a really great moon, <laughs> and but because the moon is exalted in the sign of Taurus, and exalted is a term that we like to use in astrology for a planet that has VIP status, like it has a lot of qualities that are ideal. So some of the keywords that we think of when we look at the sign of Taurus is practical, steady, you might even be stubborn because the sign of Taurus is like a fixed sign. You, you are really loyal and sincere. You're emotionally grounded. So those are all things that um, we would associate with somebody that has a Taurus moon. And something else about your moon is that it has what's called accidental dignity because it's in a house that's angular. And we talked about angles at the beginning of this discussion. And like angles are just parts of the chart that stick out more. And so having planets that are close to those angles gives them more strength, if that makes sense. So one of the really nice qualities that you have is just this loyalty and constancy and emotions. And like, that's something that's really nice to have in terms of, I guess, what anybody would really want for their emotions. And the way you express yourself too might have more of a Venusian quality. So when we talk about the planet Venus, Venus is associated with what makes things beautiful and pleasing to others. And so having that type of influence on the part of your chart that represents how you're perceived by others and how you express yourself, how you like filter the world around you is really nice because it means that people might feel really comfortable and secure when they're around you. So again, like keywords of Taurus, it's like this feeling of security and having nice taste and like enjoying like the material world around you and feeling really grounded, really. So that's your first house. So in some way, the way you appear to others and the way you filter the world around you is really expressed through this Venusian <laughs> Taurus moon that you have. So again, when we're looking at the ascendant, we not only look at the planets that are in the first house, but we also look at planetary rulers. And so for you, you have your Venus which is the chart ruler, your chart planetary ruler, and Mars in the 11th house of hopes and wishes and social networks. So the 11th house in astrology often represents our wide network of friends, like people we consider as acquaintances, and also our dreams, like things that we want to do. And also, because it represents like groups of people that we're part of. It can also represent groups that are like parts of hobbies and like different affiliations that we have. So in some way, the way that you, I guess the way that you approach life is connected to how you relate to different groups that you're part, a part of and that you're passionate about. So since you have the planet Venus, which is like your sense of taste and like what you love, conjunct Mars, which is the planet of like ambition and drive, it tends to make you very passionate of a person. And also it gives you like this really hopeless romantic type of quality because the sign of Pisces, it's like the zodiac sign that's associated with dreams and like idealism. And so having Venus and Mars there can make you like really passionate and idealistic. 
And so maybe when you were younger, you might have had had trouble like differentiating infatuation from real love. And like with your friends, you might have had this habit of like seeing the best in them and not really seeing them for who they were, because like you're just looking at the best in other people, especially since Venus and Mars like forms this square aspect, which is kind of like tension between Neptune, which is like this. I don't know if you can see it, but like it's this weird like Y shape that's in this in the part of the circle that's numbered eight. So like you might have struggled with like over idealizing things at one point in your life. But maybe because of that, it like also helps you to form friendships because who doesn't like to have somebody who sees the best in them and and who believes in them. And so you might have like a just a circle of acquaintances that you're able to maintain really good contact with because of your moon, like your loyalty and just this ability to like once you've made up your mind about somebody, you probably have a hard time changing it. So I think also having like this great passion and this great idealism can make it to where like you have to be careful not to be misled or to have people take advantage of you basically. And at the same time, like it, it's just nice to have somebody that likes to follow their dreams and to see the best in everything. So that just covers like your first house <laughs> and like the ruler that I see there. And by the way, um, your son happens to be in the 11th house too. So I don't know if you were aware of like what your son, you know, like how most people refer to their zodiac sign. Mm -hmm. So you like some people might say you fall on a cusp because like you are born like on the date that falls between Aquarius and Pisces, but like you're technically a Pisces sun and not an Aquarius sun because like at the moment you were born, you were 25 minutes into Pisces, which is like why hmm. I told you it was really important that I have like your exact birth time so that we can get you a more accurate chart. But, but yeah, like a lot of people I know who have strong Pisces energy are like very idealistic and they're very willing to see like what the good is in others. Okay, so moving on to your second house, like your second house is in Gemini, which is the zodiac sign, which is associated with like being communicative and curious. And the second house in astrology represents how we make our living and like our, our material possessions. So the planetary ruler for that house happens to be in your house of career. So in some way, like writing and communications and anything that like resonates with Gemini themes, like just being like generally curious about the world around you and like being able to hold a, go a good conversation is related to your career. And so the other funny thing is since you, so you have, I remember earlier in this conversation, I referred to your midheaven angle, which is the angle that's most associated with your public image and your career. You have Mercury conjunct that are pretty tightly conjunct that midheaven angle. And so in astrology, Mercury is the planet that is associated with our intellect and our communication skills and just any type of technical skill in general. So you have it in the sign of Aquarius. And Aquarius is the sign of being innovative and like different from everybody else. 
And it's also a sign that's like very humanitarian in that it's like very accepting and tolerant of other people's views. So again, to this concept of like accidental dignity, which is like when one of your planets is conjunct an angle that is like very visible to other people or just like an angle somewhere in your chart, it gives that planet strength. So so another astrologer looking at this chart would say, well, like this person has a really strong Mercury because it has accidental dignity. So it means that this person is probably really intelligent, has great intellect, has great communication skills. And in the sign of Aquarius, it also means that you're probably very open-minded and that you're able to be objective like when you're considering viewpoints that are different from yourself one thing about your mercury though is that it squares saturn in the seventh house and the seventh house in astrology is important relationships that we have so not just like romantic partners best friends but also people who are influential in our life because they were particularly crappy to us like enemies and just like relationships that we've had that were very character forming. So for you, you have that square aspect. And it means that like, maybe in an earlier age, you might have struggled with self confidence and like trying to figure out how to assert yourself. Another consequence of having such a, a strong mercury is that you might have an, a tendency to overthink things or overanalyze things. And you might still have that problem now. <laughs> so in some ways, like you have like analysis paralysis, or like just this ability to kind of like Jedi mind trick yourself into thinking you're not enough. And like, because Saturn is in your seventh house, like that could have been because of the influence of a partner or somebody that you just really strongly just did not get along with and it caused you to self-doubt yourself. But on the other hand, one good thing about Saturn is it doesn't just represent like our restrictions because Saturn is like, I like to liken Saturn as like the father figure that you don't want to disappoint because he seems like really distant and cold and like he seems like biblical God basically but he also just makes us bring out our A game so in some ways he might have had really close relationships that forced you and challenged you to bring out the best in yourself. Like maybe like you you get along best with people who intellectually stimulate you and challenge you. And so that's something that's represented by that harsh aspect too. But yeah, like I guess since the birth chart or the natal chart also represents part of your karma, it's think of karma also as not just like this idea of like, if I do something bad then something bad is going to happen to me, it's more like, you're born with certain experiences in life that you're meant to go through to develop as a person. And so it looks like part of your karma is just like understanding the dynamics of your relationships and not letting them limit you. And also just not limiting yourself, like when you feel like really hard on yourself, because you do have like a really great mind and you're very intelligent. So that's always going to be one of your greater strengths. And that takes me to the next house in your chart, which is the third house. So the third house is Cancer. And in astrology, Cancer is a sign ruled by the moon. Cancer, if you think about like the actual animal that represents Cancer, a crab, it's like very, it has like a shell that like uses to protect itself. It kind of likes to, it has its own like comfort zone. So one thing I'm seeing in your chart is that you are somebody that really appreciates comfort. (laughs) like just this like just feeling attached to what you know and like what you know is safe 
And so like you might be the type of person that appreciates like a good pillow or like good comfort food or like when people hang out with you, they probably feel like this sense of like warmth and safety. And like those are actually qualities that are really important to you as well. But the third house represents our early upbringings and it also represents it also represents like our immediate community and our like immediate family and just like our childhood. And for some reason, and like, sometimes I forget this connection, but it represents also like our self-expression and like our ability to communicate in like in both writing and like verbally. So that's another strong area in your life. So there's like multiple testimonies in this chart that to me show like that in this life you were born to have great communication skills and to like make the best of them. So because you have what's called the North Node there, the North Node in astrology, a lot of people associate with a life purpose. So maybe your purpose in life is to figure out how to be more expressive and more genuine and authentic to like what you find is near and dear to you. So I think at some point. <laughs> and like, this might actually be something that's coming up now, because you actually have like a lot of planets that are transiting your 10th house of career, like you, I wouldn't be surprised if you had an opportunity come up, where you basically just get to show the world like what you really love and are passionate about, even if it just seems kind of mundane to you, like things that are comfortable and like familiar to you. And it also kind of shows that you have like a constant calling to come back home, if that makes sense, to like revisit your roots. And so somehow I see that's intertwined with how you express yourself and like the story that you have to share. So maybe what one interpretation of that is that like you should feel more more pride in like where you come from and like what you find interesting and familiar and see the value in being able to share that with other people even though like it might feel a bit uncomfortable because like this is the lower half of your chart so these are things that are kind of more like intimate <laughs> and like and like it's kind of like having someone hang out like in your room like well, platonically really but like just get to know you up close and personal but like it seems to me that you would find a lot of purpose in doing that so I had some more notes about like what I wanted to talk about like we're only like three houses into your chart <laughs> oh by the way so you're turning age 38 right so yeah, 38 okay so you actually are entering what's called the third house perfection year and a perfection is a time lord technique I know these are like really jargony type words but basically like there's 12 signs in the zodiac. And so every 12 years, starting from your first birthday, you enter a first house perfection year. And then like from each, like you go through a different, every year you basically have themes of a certain house that are more relevant to you. So this year you happen to be going through a third house perfection year, which means that you might be writing a lot more, you might be making more trips to see your family, like just, just like not long distance trips, like I guess COVID safe trips, like yeah. you might be doing yeah. more creatively with your communications career. And you also might be more sensitive to lunar events and lunar meaning your moon. So I actually have two dates that come to mind because there are dates of lunar eclipses. 
For the first lunar eclipse, it happens at five degrees of Sagittarius on May 26th of this year. And so Sagittarius is your eighth house, which is conjunct your natal Jupiter and Uranus. Yes, I pronounce Uranus, Uranus. Some people say Uranus, but like, I can't say that without like giggling like a schoolgirl. I know a lot of people say Uranus. That Uranus, <laughs> but like it, but I heard, I heard some other astrologers pronounce it as Uranus and I'm like, okay, problem solved. If I say it that way, I, I won't laugh. <laughs> I know that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says Uranus. Even he says that, yeah, it's juvenile when you say Uranus, but Uranus is the best way to go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So looking at that house, so the eighth house is a really interesting house because it deals with like an umbrella of things that are like hard to talk about. Like it includes taxes, it includes like taboo subjects like sex and mortality. It includes your partner's resources. So like basically like shared assets that you only come in contact to like if you're in a relationship with that person so like the assets of your significant other or like sometimes it can refer to like the assets of just someone you're very close to so when you have a lunar eclipse in that house it's likely that um, you'll have a very significant event like a memorable event that has to do with one of those themes so i think you know people with the jupiter and uranus conjunction like and i don't know if you're aware of this but there's a lot of people with like jupiter in the eighth house who basically are politicians because they get their money or like they have like a lot of resources that come into them from taxpayer money and so again like the eighth house represents taxes so eighth house can also represent like inheritances so basically like some type of money that isn't yours is Uh represented by the eighth house and uranus is the planet of like surprises and like things that you don't really expect to see coming and so i would think because Jupiter is in a good, it's in a good sign since it's in the sign of its rulership. Sagittarius is like this planet that's like a very happy go lucky type of sign. Like it has to do with like the themes that Jupiter is most associated with, like expansion and higher wisdom and like wanting to traverse borders and stuff like that. So like Jupiter feels happy in that sign. And so it's happy in the sign of Sagittarius in your chart. So with that conjunction, like if you kind of like blend the two significations of that planet, like a happy sort of surprise, like there could be a chance that you might come across like an inheritance of some sort or just like unexpected money that isn't yours, like maybe from like taxes or what, like, I don't know. But like those topics are likely to come up. And like, as a result of that, it's also really important because of the other things I see in your chart that like, if you ever do have a situation where you end up with like a like an unexpected windfall, that you set up really good expectations with whoever you end up having to share that with. So that way, there isn't any type of misunderstanding that could cause like an argument or some type of fallout. And it seems like you have a lot of karma in your chart that like, points to you maybe trusting the wrong people. And I know that seems like everybody deals with that, but like you in particular, (laughs) like might have to be really careful with that, at least when it comes to issues like stuff you share with others. So another good thing about like the Jupiter Uranus conjunction in your chart is that you, you come across a lot of unexpected 
opportunities, like you also might just like attract a lot of experiences and people in your life who are like good for you, but like in a surprising way. And just like dealing with like this interesting characters may have been like a big theme in your life. And just knowing how to set up good boundaries with them is going to be really important. The other thing I was looking at, I just see that you have like a lot of blessings when it comes to being able to share what you're curious about and like stuff that you're able to convey to people using writing or some other forms of communication. Like your fifth house is ruled by Mercury too. And like the fifth house is like another good house in astrology because like it refers to our creations, like our creative babies, so to speak, because like the fifth house also represents children, but our children can be like all sorts of things, not just like actual babies, but pet projects, like stuff that you put a lot of love and like effort into. So that's ruled by your really strong Mercury too. And so if you can just get over like your own inhibitions and like self-doubt, then you would do really well with anything you create using your really great communication skills and your really sharp intellect. And then the other house I was looking at is your seventh house of partnerships. So you actually have at least up until your, I want to say like age 30 or something like that, you might have had problems finding a really suitable long-term partner. Most people go through what's called a Saturn return. Well, not most people, all people go through what's a Saturn return because of like the time it takes for Saturn to go through all 12 signs, which is about like 27 and a half years. And so every 27 and a half years, <laughs> we have this period of about like two and a half years where we're really challenged in some way. And so it just depends on like what house Saturn is in. And so for you, maybe around the age of 30, you might have had some really challenging experiences involving your close relationships or deep or friendships. And usually around this time, it's like when people go through just more responsibilities. It could have just meant that you had like more responsibilities in general when it came to relationships or like important contractual relationships that you were in. Or, you know, you might have gone through like a tough breakup or something like that. But a Saturn return for most people just re usually represents like a coming of age in somebody's story, like a time in their life where they felt like they were entering a new chapter <laughs> and like feeling like they matured more in some way. And I think I, I mentioned earlier about like how having Saturn in the seventh can, can sometimes mean that it takes you a long time to find the right person. But when you do find someone that's right for you, it's a relationship that's built to last because the planet Saturn like favors long-term things that are good for us versus like short-term gratification. And so as you get older, like you might find that the quality of your friendships is really just gets better for you. And you also have Pluto there, which is this planet of intense transformation. <laughs> so like when you meet someone like that's a good friend to you or even your significant other or somebody that you actually are a good fit for, you might feel as though they literally change your life, like change a lot of things about you. So I think, again, like this can be said for a lot of people, but for you, 
um, too, like it's important that you pick people like I'm not even just referring to like significant others, but like friends, because for some reason, it seems that the friends that you have, like have a really profound impact on you. And like, it's almost like you would change a lot about yourself. <laughs> to not maybe not just to accommodate them, but like just having them in your life has like a, such a strong impact on you and even on how you think about yourself and how you believe in yourself. That's one way I would interpret that. The other thing is that the seventh house, it represents like the energy of people who you have significant relationships with. So because the seventh house is Scorpio, and I'm kind of la like, laughing to myself about this now because I'm a Scorpio and we're and we seem to be relatively good or okay friends <laughs> like you're my good friend I don't know <laughs> like please be my friend <laughs> but anyway like you have significant relationships with people who have Scorpio type energy so like you might feel drawn to people who seem more like mysterious or like reserved or people that just have more to them than like what's on the surface like and then another, like, there's other qualities, like keywords I would associate with Scorpio. But that's what comes to mind, like people who are, who kind of have like this mysterious allure to them. Although I don't know if I would classify myself as that. That's just one of the, like this, the stereotypes or archetypes of that sign. So I feel like maybe people who are really passionate and loyal and good at keeping secrets, those are people that are really good for you. But in terms of like, what else the seventh house represents, which is people that you've had maybe more difficult relationships with that taught you lessons. Um, maybe it's like people who betrayed you and you just didn't feel like you saw it coming because that's like one of the darker Scorpio traits, like feeling ambushed by, by something they've done because they, they seem to be so good at keeping secrets or just people who are like more over possessive or controlling, like those are other dark traits. <laughs> associated with Scorpio too. So the chart just shows themes of stuff that potential potentially could happen in your life and just situations that are going to be themes in your life. And yeah, looking at other parts of your chart, like the 12th house represents like our subconscious and like stuff that we can't really see since it's like in a place that can't really be seen from your ascendant. So like Marsy type energy, you may feel as though like that type of energy or like maybe people with that energy are like harder to understand for you or like just stuff that like resonates with some of your more subconscious fears. But anyway, if I were to just give you like an overview of chart, like it's stuff that you know about yourself already. And it's harder when I'm your friend because like it's hard not to look at this chart from like a a more objective standpoint since I know some of this stuff about you but I don't think I, I knew everything so in a way it's like meeting you over again and you have a lot of luck when it comes to anything <laughs> anything involving written communications but you also have a lot of challenges when it comes to over idealizing people and maybe not having clear boundaries in your relationships, especially like maybe just like despite the fact that you are really smart and you are really good at figuring things out, there's like certain situations you get into that make you doubt yourself. And this chart is telling you that instead of doubting yourself, like you, you have to rise above it and challenge yourself to be at your best because that's something you can do. 
So I'm really interested to see how some of these like lunar eclipses play out. I don't remember if I May 26th, one May 26th, and I I forgot one that um, happens on your ascendant actually. So November 19th, um, you might pursue a certain goal regarding your identity or like your appearance. Like maybe you'll have a new style that you want to adopt. Like maybe you have like a wardrobe change. Maybe you lose weight more. Um, but like it's more substantial than that, it seems. Like there's something that comes up that makes you think you want to go in a direction where you're redefining yourself. So I don't know how that's going to manifest for you. And especially since like I'm telling you about it, because like I'm thinking about like other times I've had lunar eclipses happen to me and I wasn't aware of them because I, I haven't been using them as much in my own practice. But like I look back on like certain dates and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I remember what happened then. <laughs> and it was like something that was really significant for me emotionally, at least. Um so yeah, um, I wanted to give you a solar return chart reading too. And it's going to be really short because like I didn't get a chance to look over it that much. But so the solar return chart is different from a natal chart because it looks at where the sun is when it returns to the exact degree in the sky that it was at the time of your birth. So um, it's like a whole, it's like its own natal chart. And so this year, it looks really significant for your career. So you have like a lot of stuff going on in both your house of close personal relationships, the seventh house, and the tenth house of your career and public image. So I'm thinking that somehow there's some type of tension between those two areas of your life that happened sometime this year that like... I don't know, it might be good for you, but it also might be really stressful. And looking at your actual solar return chart, your moon and Mars in your 10th house is conjunct the moon, your natal chart. So to me, that's significant because it feels like, especially there's Uranus there too, which is the planet of like surprises and like innovation and stuff, like stuff that's unexpected. Like you might find a way to recraft yourself in a way that other people weren't expecting. And it has a lot to do with your career and like your career aspirations and like personal goals of yours, like how you want to be perceived by other people. And so somehow like another theme of repetition in this chart like between your natal chart and your solar return chart is that you also have Saturn. And like, this is so weird because it's like you have Saturn and Pluto on your seventh house cusp in your natal chart. And I just noticed in your solar return chart, you also have Saturn and Pluto there. And like, it's they're completely different signs too. So it's weird that that type of thing is happening. But like somehow I think that maybe relationships that are important to you or like just some type of long-term arrangement that's important to you is going to be put in focus by like your career aspirations. So maybe you'll be balancing your own personal goals and your own career goals with how that plays out in your other closer relationships. And somehow those areas are intertwined. You also have sun in the eighth house, which I think is interesting given the fact that you have a lunar eclipse coming up in that eighth house too. So somehow like I don't know what, but like money that's not yours 
or like some sort of theme of like resources or money that's not yours or there's something surrounding like other taboo topics like death and inheritance. Like I don't want to make make that sound really scary. I, you know. It could just mean that like you have like some sort of mysterious benefactor in your life that like like bestows upon you like a great gift or you could just get a huge tax return, who knows. But like those like it's more likely though because like the seventh the eighth house ruler is in your seventh house uh, meaning that like somehow this like whatever's going on in that area of your life is connected with your partner that like either you have this issue of like how to divvy up these shared resources with your loved ones or people close to you or like somehow through them you through some sort of relation to them you you come across like a huge windfall of some sort you have neptune there too so neptune in a chart to me because neptune is this planet of if you think of like what he's like in greek and roman mythology he's like the the god of the ocean and like of dreams and stuff like that and it's this area that kind of seems blurry to us because we can't see it clearly so it calls upon you to to be very clear in communicating what your boundaries are because like when we have some sort of divination telling us hey this is a part of your life where you're not able to see things very clearly be very you want to be as objective as possible if you can help it if you can be self-aware of it and involve people that aren't as close to the issue but have your best interest in mind when you're dealing with topics like that so this is a big year for you because you have like certain things repeating in both charts and like they're completely different charts, but relevant to you, <laughs> like where obviously your the quality of your really your most important relationships is going to be put into focus. And also like your career aspirations involving like stuff you already do, like writing and expressing yourself in an authentic way are going to be big things for you. And big and in influencing like whatever you want to be next. So I'm excited to see how that plays out for you because it seems like yeah. these are all really good things. Um, not everyone can say that they have a Venus, <laughs> like a really nice conditioned moon in their ascendant. Like I wish I had a Taurus moon. <laughs> um, I have a Cancer moon and like it makes me very sensitive and empathetic. And there's obvious qualities that are good that come from having that kind of configuration. But for me, like sometimes I just wish I had an off switch for like how I was feeling. And like, I feel like with a Taurus moon, like you have, you're much better at being practical about how you feel. <laughs> Even if you are a bit of a hopeless romantic. <laughs> you know what, looking at this stuff and hearing it makes me a bit nervous, <laughs> very nervous. Some of those things you read to a T, which like, yikes. I mean, that's just how I would interpret it. Like you have, oh, actually, I just noticed in your solar return chart, you have North Node in the 11th in Gemini. So um, so I think that's like fairly good for social networking and stuff like that. You also have, oh gosh, I just noticed that you have Rahu, which is the South Node. It's kind of like a karmic thing going on in, in the sign of Sagittarius for you this year. So that will be conjunct where you have your lunar eclipse, but not very close. So I don't know, something transformative happens there. And I hate using the word transformative because there's a lot of people <laughs> who like throw around certain words in astrology that make me think like, do I really sound like that? Do I sound like very like woo woo? And, and not to bash on that kind of thing, but like, 
for me, it's just, it doesn't resonate with me as much. And like, I, I try to use my chart reading capability to just kind of prepare people for what's coming next, if I can do it. Because it's an intuitive art as much as it is like being able to understand books and symbolism. So <laughs> yeah, around people's birthdays is when I do stuff like this. I take a look at their solar return chart and like I kind of tell them, hey, like I see this coming up for you. But there's much stronger predictive techniques out there, but I'm not really versed in yet. And that's something I've been working on more in my practice. So it was fun kind of going over this with you because like I felt like we were close as far as team members go on like our HCAST team, but like I don't know that we ever really got closer than that, like in terms of friends. Some of this stuff, like I, I feel like I'm reading it to you and I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> like I, I'm sure I'm, a lot of people know that about you, but it feels more profound for me when it's like someone I've never met before and I kind of go through the same thing and like, it's sort of like, how did you know that? I'm like, I don't know, like <laughs> I read some books and like, I just do this a lot. It's something I feel like I'm really good at doing. Like, I feel like if I ever went into a different career than I have now, I'd probably be some type of counselor for something. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I'm talking about like those relationships, I'm not just talking about like your partner. Like I'm talking about like other people too, like just friends you're really close to, honestly. In astrology, there's like two different houses that refer to the types of friends you have. The 11th is like more people, you know, on a casual basis, because I don't know why that is, but I, I have to understand that more too. But and then also the seventh house, which is like everything else in between. So like from the people you are like deeply and madly in love with to like important business partnerships to like people that like you just are going to clash butt heads with. So for some reason, like all of those relationship dynamics are, are covered by that house. But yeah, like I have a lot of other friends who are astrologers. It's funny because like there's so, people who I very much respect that have like written lots of books and stuff like that. But it's hard to be really successful at that, at least uh, in terms of like the monetary gain you can get. So they make a lot of money or they make their living through doing stuff like I do, which is like giving consultations, which are probably better in quality. <laughs> and like, also you just send them an email and you're like, hey, I'd like to have a reading with you. And like, they get back to you. And I'm like, wow, like I didn't know it was so easy to reach you. Like you have like 10 books and like a YouTube channel. And to think that your main source of income is derived from like doing stuff like this. Gosh, <laughs> like how many clients do you have to have? It's scary. Um, there's also another creepier branch of astrology I shouldn't say creepy but it's called horary astrology and basically like what you do is if you have a question that's really important to you meaning like one that's like super stressing you out and you don't know like what type of decision to make like you can you can cast a chart and you look to the, to where the planets are to help you answer that question in some cases like you can even get a good idea of a timing of like when things are going to happen and so i've done that a couple times for me like over the past few months when i had some like really traumatic like just ugh, like stuff happen and i i didn't know what to do and you know i would look at it and i'm like that can't be right like that doesn't seem at all like what how i'm perceiving it but like i saw it play out and i'm like okay so that's proof that this works <laughs> if you know if you know what you're doing with it on a more basic level like just the art of reading people's natal charts like their nativity and like their solar return I, I see it more like a therapy type of thing and just like understanding your soul's purpose 
which makes it sound like very dramatic, but I don't know. Like, I feel like it's just another tool for getting to know yourself better. It's kind of healing too, because it makes you realize that some circumstances you can't really avoid. You can kind of just prepare yourself for them better. It, it helps you be more accepting of just certain themes in this life that you've, you're like, why me? You know, <laughs> like, is it me? Was I the person that like caused all this? And no, it's more like, again, this idea of karma as being just like a theme in your life that's important for the development of your soul that you have to go through. And I know that kind of ascribes to it some sort of potential higher purpose that might not be there, like, because you can't really measure it. But when you think about how you've tried your best to avoid certain circumstances and they, you still had to suffer something, it makes you feel more capable of dealing with it because you're like, hey, I've been through the same thing before. I'm probably going to have to go through it again because my birth chart has these certain signatures that point to this being a theme I have to work through. And maybe there's meaning in that. Like maybe there's a way I can help other people. Maybe there's something to it that like I, that's beyond my own understanding, but at least I know that I can deal with it. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is very interesting. And like I said, and seeing that I went into it with an open mind, which is interestingly I, enough. I uh, attribute that to your Mercury being in the open-minded sign of Aquarius. Like I said, it makes me super nervous, though, which uh, you think of those dates, but you try to put on the back of your head now because now it's going to well, creep you up. Know, honestly, I, mean, I feel like you might not know what it is until it gets closer. And like, honestly, for me, like there's other time lord techniques and um, other predictive techniques that like will tell you a certain date. And sometimes I just look at it and I forget about it. And then like I look at it again and I'm like, shoot, like, should I have avoided that? <laughs> And like, because that's sometimes how I view um, certain things that I feel like are about to happen. And there's a lot of good, like YouTube astrologers out there that kind of talk about how to deal with more difficult transits or more like when you know you're about to come into a difficult period of your life, how like, you know, how to deal with that. And I know that people would rather, you know, go into it with like, I don't want to know like what's going to happen next. And, and like, that's okay, too. But if you were meant to find something out, then you're going to find it out. And then you're also going to be able to learn how to run from it or deal with it, you know. So I've been trying to take that same outlook. But there's like, also times where I'm like, too scared to look. I'm like, what kind of year am I going to have? Oh, my God, yikes. <laughs> so you said what kind of beer you have? I said year, oh. but why not oh. beer? I actually don't really drink still. So I recently got into liking Moscow mules, but only because they're like available around the holidays. I don't even have like the copper mugs or anything. But turns out I just really happen to like ginger ale and something about like having like a citrusy thing in there and like vodka, which you can barely taste anyway, is probably why I like it so much. Like, I just like ginger. I don't know. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, like sometimes you like, I'm sure some people look at stuff that's coming up and feel like, oh, maybe I, I ought to have a drink for this. But yeah, with charts and stuff like, and again, I have like a lot of close friends are in my same line of work, if you want to call it that. And usually like what we'll do is we'll, I'll, I'll say something like, do you want to swap readings? Because if it's something that gives you a lot of anxiety, like it's best if you have someone else who can be more objective, interpret it for you. Because if you have a lot of anxiety regarding something, you're trying to seek guidance from the planets or the universe or whatever you want to call it, it's harder to look at it with an objective lens. You just start reading all your own anxieties into 
um, the situation. And that's not helpful to you. Like, again, like if you know that you're about to face something difficult, it doesn't help to focus on stuff that you're fearful of. Instead, it's like better to label those types of things. And this is obviously something I might have to deal with. How can I best mitigate that? And a good friend, like someone who's talented at that and also has like a bit of empathy is maybe the right person to, um, to go over that with you. And I find sometimes too, because believe it or not, there's like a fairly thriving social network of like other astrologers who use charts for study practice. Like they'll talk about what does this mean? <laughs> and like, they'll go over all of like the literature that they've read on it and like discuss it and that kind of thing. But basically like there's all sorts of people who are willing to weigh in with like their opinions on it. And I find that sometimes there are people that get so excited about their abilities to read that they forget they're dealing with people's actual problems. So sometimes it's just, you don't want to just go out there and then like expect that people are always going to tell you something that's helpful or is sensitive to the situation. And that's a big learning experience too, is that like, you might go in with like a certain expectation of what you're about to hear or like no expectations at all and still feel like let down by your own expectations that you didn't know you had. So that's like a saying I came up with recently is that relationships are like a good way to find out how people can let you down with expectations you didn't know you had. <laughs> like I just sometimes constantly find myself disappointed because that, that was something I had in my own head about like how I wanted things to go. And like, I didn't know that was an expectation that I had. And like most disappointments are caused by people failing to meet an expectation that you had. And like, you just didn't happen to know you had it. And <laughs> it makes you learn a lot about yourself and what's important to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I've enjoyed doing the chart readings. And honestly, I will just definitely try to not get over consumed with it because that is a very easy thing to do. Yeah, well, you do have um, a strong mercury. And again, like I said, people with strong mercury tend to like not only are they really good at thinking, it's like they're too good at thinking. <laughs> like they're too good. at Like there is such thing as too much of a good thing. So yeah, as soon as you said the other thing, I'm like, yep, that's me. Yeah, that's what's so cool about it is that like, even when you feel like your friend knows you pretty well, like there's always like parts of you that you didn't think people picked up on. And that's what makes people feel so vulnerable, or at least other astrologers when they're sharing a chart, especially like if they're just used to sharing it, like close acquaintances, or just people who are like, they have a lot of experience of reading it. So they know, like, what would be useful to tell the person because like, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say. But not all of it is going to necessarily be helpful. And like, on top of that, like not all of it is going to be stuff that you resonate with. And a chart reading isn't good if it doesn't help the person that it's geared towards, if there's stuff in there that's not particularly flattering. And I, I also don't feel it's helpful if you can see stuff in there, but it doesn't resonate with that person at all. Like it just kind of goes over their head and it doesn't lead to greater self-awareness because you still have to feel like you can relate to something before you get to the point where you're self-aware, if that makes sense. So yeah, like sometimes I feel weird about sharing my chart just with like other astrologers, even if I know they're fairly good at what they do, because there's nothing worse than feeling woefully misunderstood somehow. 
<laughs> like when someone says something about you which, which, that you feel like you could partially resonate with, but you feel like has you down so wrong. Like you, it just causes a lot of self-doubt and like anxiety. And like, that's something I really want to avoid. But I also try to just be honest if I feel like I see something, not that I'd be concerned about, but like, you know, just something that like based on all the other stuff I've read seems to point in a direction that you might want to be aware of. So I never leave that out because it's just good to tell people how you really feel about things if you can help it. Yeah. And I'm definitely glad for that because uh, just being able to do that, it does shed a little more light. Uh, the next thing I want to do is since there is sports in the title. Oh my I gosh, to- I'm not ready for this. <laughs> so this is something I was thinking of doing with you last time, but now I'm thinking again, your skill on playing an H cask and recall memories, which is, Basically, it's amazing that how crazy their brain is when it comes to recalling facts, even the most inane ones, even like the discussion of graham crackers. And oh, man. <laughs> I am going to give you, we're doing sports trivia, and these are seven questions, and a couple of them have extra secondary questions with them. So um, whenever you're ready, I would play some background music, but I don't know if it ends up getting flagged eventually for uh, trademark infringement. <laughs> I was going to play like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire's uh, like fastest finger music just to sort of add up the drama. I try to demonetize yourself if you can help it. Oh, yeah. Well, demonetizing would start with being monetized first. (laughs) Okay, here we go. This is the first question, and this is the category of basketball. Okay. Number one, who is the all-time leading regular season score or all-time leading score in NBA history? Um, I think it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, yes. Is that right? That is correct. Like, I was thinking about Kobe first. I think he's, like, somewhere on that list. But Art, rest in peace, Kobe. I miss you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was a very, I mean, the day that happened, that was just so strange. We were coming back from church, and I had walked the dog, had not looked at my phone. My phone was in my pocket. And then somebody I see on Facebook saying, you know, Kobe Bryant died. And I'm like, okay. Because you always try to trust and verify right. that, you know, crazy people on the internet spe- making all these speculations. Like, you know, they talk about Sinbad had died like 15 times. And then you look, and, oh, yep, yeah, it's true. And that sort of like, yeah, that was not what I was expecting. It was really sad. I heard he was such an amazing dad. And like, that breaks my heart so much, like to just know that he has a family that misses him. And, you know, and he had such a close relationship with his daughter, his daughter, too. It was that's so sad. Because really, honestly, when you think about it, somebody who barely, I mean, still our age group, I don't even think he was maybe 40, maybe a little over 40. I think he might have been about 41, if anything. Uh, oh, my God. And there was plenty left in his career. He was going to do uh, 41. Yes, he was going to do a lot more. He was already looking into, you know, getting into writing more and, and doing so much other stuff. And and unfortunately, when your number is up, no matter whether it's fair or not, it, it's always a tough thing to, to deal with. And, you know, it's always it's going to happen to all of us eventually at one point, which now I've made it gloomy. Uh, here's the follow-up bonus. What two teams did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar play for? Um, I remember he was with the Lakers for a long time. And then he was with, well, first he was with the Milwaukee Bucks. Yep, Milwaukee Bucks. He is still the all-time leading scorer in Milwaukee Bucks history. And yeah, and he only played there for like six seasons. Okay, the next category, number two. This is football. 
what team or teams okay. have the most Super Bowl wins? Okay, the Patriots, obviously. And I think they're tied with like the Steelers or something. Yes, they both have six. Okay. Okay, it's right now you're three for three. Let's go on to number three. <laughs> this is hockey. Okay. Within 15 goals. How many career NHL goals, we'll say regular season, did Wayne Gretzky have? Within 15. So that gives you a little bit of a range. Um, I want to say almost like a thousand. Is that close? Um, I'll take a direct number. How, how many was it? Uh, he had 894. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, see, he was six short of 900. And I think that might be passed in a few years if uh, if Alexander Ovechkin stays healthy and doesn't have any more contact with people who have COVID. Here's a bonus. What was Wayne Gretzky's first professional team? Um, well, he's Canadian, I think. So let me think. The Racers? The Indianapolis Racers of the World Hockey Association. He only played eight games before the team went belly up, and then they sold him to Edmonton, where everybody knows where he played. Uh, he looks really good. Have you seen pictures of him lately? Like, it's not. I have not. <laughs> yeah, I. Well, I don't know. Some people must just age really well, which is probably an argument for me to start working out because just some people just look really good and like there's no there's no good reason for them to be looking like that. <laughs> <laughs> like he doesn't even look like he's had any work done or anything. So and especially being out in LA, you think that's that's the <laughs> that's the capital of facelifts and plastic surgery. Oh yeah, surgery. like you know what? Now another show comes to mind when you ask me that Netflix question. Somehow I got really into. What is that show? Botched. <laughs> and like, it's like a lot of people who come in with their really messed up plastic surgeries that went wrong. And then like, there's these two characters that are very like funny and engaging and they're not characters. They're actual surgeons and they, they fix it for them. And I'm like, so happy for them because they feel happy now. <laughs> but um, anyway. <laughs> so far you are five for five. Well, well, we'll say four for five because you were sort of in the neighborhood with the Gretzky thing. This is baseball. Who has the most World Series titles? Uh, the Yankees. Yes. Ah, uh, now the bonus. How many? Um, I don't know. Um, I want to say they have almost thirty. Is that close? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Okay. As Duffman would say, close enough. Um, in the okay tennis now, in the open era of women's tennis. Who has the most singles Grand Slam titles? I know it's a little iffy with some of the language there, but in when they started having the open era and it was more than just amateurs. Hmm. Probably Serena, if it's not Venus. <laughs> uh, which one is your answer? Uh, Serena. I'll go Serena. 23. She has 23. She is one behind the all-time record, which is 24 and. Who's yeah. that? Who? Uh, Margaret Court. Oh. If you read about Margaret Court, that is a very interesting story. I'll just leave it at that, leaving biases and uh, other things out. So far, you're still going. What city is the Basketball Hall of Fame located in? Um, I think it's in Massachusetts somewhere, but now I don't remember where it was. <laughs> where is it, Earl? Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. The game was founded in a YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. Awesome. With peach, you know, with the peach baskets. We should do this uh, with chicken wings next time. Thing. Oh, <laughs> you know, virtual chicken. Oh, gosh, the virtual chicken wings. Oh, no. I told my brother, I won't do chicken wings. I'll do something else ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I might. I mean, we were talking about cheeses, but, you know. Chicken wings. If I have to break out the chicken wings, that should be a a huge pool of a Zoom call video that that would get a whole bunch of people on here because that would be hilarious. And one more Washington Mystics player, Elena Deladon, was a basketball star at what university? Hint: She is from this state. Oh, Delaware. <laughs> yes, the University of Delaware. I see. Well, the hint was when she was from the state that she starred in high school, but, you know, close enough. Same thing. It's from <laughs> this state, but yeah, definitely. That's such a cute name to have. Like, she sounds like she's meant to be famous. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, like, her family, they they own a lot of real estate. So it's like Deladon Residential. I mean, tons of stuff. They own, like probably properties where malls would be and, and things like that. You, you can't go anywhere in the state of Delaware, well, northern Delaware, without seeing that. That's pretty cool. I'm so happy for her. That sounds like a charmed life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We zoomed through this and all the chart readings. Anything new going on with you? I know you mentioned earlier you moved into a new house, but... um, Not really. I've just been focusing on... I think I told you in the last conversation we had that it was really into embroidery. So I've been thinking of like opening up my Etsy shop because I just have so much stuff now. And I've been so shy about like trying to sell it. I think earlier on when I started it, I just never felt like anything was good enough. But I feel like I'm at a point in my skill level where I feel more confident about what I have to offer. So one of these days, because like a lot of my my friends have Etsy shops now too. And I'm like, I'm going to fit in. (laughs) So it's just been one of my goals is to like feel I have like pieces of art that I can share with people that I really liked making. But beyond that, like nothing else is new. I think I told you what weird shows I was watching. And it's funny because like, I feel like I watch so many and like, I also watch like a lot of stuff on YouTube, but like just not as much stuff on Netflix that feels like conversation topic worthy. Uh, What are some ways that people can reach out to you and maybe get in contact with you a little more after this episode and your first episode? You know what? I'll have to get started on that. Like, how about like I start my Twitter account (laughs) or something and then people can reach out to me that way? Because last time I didn't have any real contact info for you either. But I have an Instagram. It's at Little Mermaid's Art. So that's where I post pictures of like the stuff that I made on my embroidery machine. So that's one way people could reach out to me. As I mentioned before, I came into the interview with an open mind and curiosity about the entire process. And I came away a bit amazed about what you're able to learn. With spring training coming up, I'll take a look at some of the looks and styles of baseball jerseys and other uniforms with friend of the show, Ben Penserga. We'll discuss some of our favorite current and retro looks as well. Don't forget, you can find episodes of The Sports Refuge wherever podcasts are heard, including Apple, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, and more. Also, feel free to share, subscribe, and leave a review as well. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to The Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.